I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm, I almost hate to tell you that. That's okay. Um, <laughs> welcome to the cornucopia that is this week's Triloquy opi- o- Opius. O- opium. Opius. <laughs> oh, don't say opium. <laughs> We're not, we are talking about Hector Berlioz today. Opus uh, for this uh, Thanksgiving celebration on yeah. Triloquy. Yeah, so uh, so uh, we wanted to make sure that we had something interesting for you to think about uh, for this holiday that many of you call Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, later on uh, in this opus, we're going to uh, speak with someone who uh, spent lots of time um, on an indigenous uh, reservation, a native reservation, um, to get his perspective and um, and his conversation concerning the way that we engage uh, the conversation of uh, indigenous people, the culture they're in. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and from the outset say that um, George, the guest on this opus of Triloquy, is not native. Uh, he is, you know, very much white. Um, I did reach out to uh, several uh, folks from uh, native communities, um, and unfortunately we weren't able to book anyone, um, you know, soon enough to, to have their voices heard on the Thanksgiving opus. Uh, that's definitely coming, but I didn't want to let this holiday go by uh, without the two of us, Scott, uh, having, you know, these conversations in some way. So, you know, George offered uh, his perspective, and uh, I, I really appreciated uh, him come in, coming in, and you'll hear from him uh, here in a bit. I'm a little bit nervous to ask you this question. It's, okay. an, it's an opinion question, though, because there's a certain conductor that I've been trying to get in touch with over in Europe to talk to you on Triloquy, and you said that he has canceled white people across the board. So I know you'd, oh, I'm scared to so, name him. So that okay. So now I'm so now I'm sitting here thinking, okay, he doesn't want to interact with me because I'm white, and I wonder if there's some of that at play with indigenous people. You know, do they think, oh, here comes another white person with a microphone that wants our perspective or something? Do you think any of that is involved? I mean, I I, I think a lot of it would have to be involved, but. Uh, you know, as George will acknowledge uh, in our conversation, you know, he is by no means a, a representative. You know, the only thing that he is an expert on uh, is his experience. And he does sure. have experience uh, with uh, Native communities and, and not just in, in one area. And, he, uh, and you know, I don't, I don't know if uh, he said this before or after we cut off the mics, but, you know, he talked about uh, the, the obligation he feels to those communities when he hears that a reservation or some funeral or, or something needs a piano player or, or just needs some help, needs some work done. He feels obliged uh, to do that. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, a lot of people who uh, would complain about hearing, I'm not saying all, I'm saying a lot of white people uh, that would, you know, feel a way about uh, hearing from his perspective as opposed to a Native person's. I get that. I understand that. But uh, these days we get so caught up in uh, trying to cancel other people when we ourselves, you know, haven't done the work. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to step out of, of this for a second and pretend that I'm listening to this podcast where they're talking about uh, in, uh, indigenous culture, indigenous music um, with a white person. Well, that white person has done more work in that regard than I have, you know, I've, sure. I've, I've never spent much time in a, uh, on a, on a reservation or, or, or anything like that. So, I mean, basically that's, that's my take on it. What, what, what's your take on it? I, I, I would love to hear. I, I, just like you said, um, this is a person that has more experience in this situation than most people that are probably listening. I don't mean to make that generalization, but, um, 
I have only been past, driven past reservations. And for me, it was great to hear him talk about the positive things. Right. You know, the, um, it, it helped me to shed a few generalizations and stereotypes, you know. So, uh, so for me, it was really beneficial to hear these, um, uh, George's perspective. So. I'm look. I'm I'm looking for my soundbite. I can't find it, but we know. Yeah. Y'all y'all know the tea. Y'all remember what Pocahontas' dad said. These white men are dangerous. <laughs> and and not to you know not to <laughs> diminish, you know what that conversation means or any. But but we're we're uh we'll we'll, we'll get there uh, here in a bit. So I hope you'll stick around. If if you're still listening, thank you. <laughs> uh-huh. What about Thanksgiving traditions? Did you have any? Uh, you said that some people call this Thanksgiving. Were you one that called it Thanksgiving and celebrated? Well, um, this you know this applies more to the holiday that folks call Christmas, but it but it definitely applies to Thanksgiving. So you know my parents were so um, it's hard to explain, but you know they were so religiously conservative that um, the application of of uh, traditions outside of religion they didn't believe had a place in religion. So while you hear lots of folks say, stop taking the Christ out of Christmas, the reason for the season, you know, my dad and my parents acknowledge the the pagan traditions that we have lumped into that holiday called Christmas. So saying Merry Christmas in my household was not allowed because how dare you uh, connect you know, their Lord and Savior <laughs> mm. to to a, a commercialized holiday. Now, so in a similar vein, we didn't really grow up saying Happy Thanksgiving because uh, I can I, I can hear my mom saying it now. You should give thanks every day. You should be thankful for for every day and for everything, which is completely valid in or outside of the conversation of religion. So, um, you know, obviously on that fourth. Thursday of November, there was plenty of food. You know, my mom loves to cook. And yeah. um, if anybody knows how to put together Thanksgiving spread as black folk, you know, um, but I've uh, I've uh, I've not grown up saying happy Thanksgiving. And then since becoming an adult, you know, I usually work on Thanksgiving, you know, in my bartender days, I was the Thanksgiving bartender. Same. Uh, what about you? What 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 are your uh, childhood memories of Thanksgiving? Childhood memories are minimal because Thanksgiving, there were no toys involved with Thanksgiving. Oh, so you didn't you know. know <laughs> so I wasn't all about the food. You know, my, my brothers both love pumpkin pie for some reason, so they always look forward to that. And then, of course, there's the debate pumpkin versus sweet potato pie. We can do mm. that later. All right. <laughs> but... Uh, I didn't care for it. I didn't care for pumpkin pie, so they could have all that they wanted. I was more about the uh, pecan pie. A pecan uh, pie. And I bet you like sweet potato pie, too. Mm-hmm. Hear that, ladies? He likes sweet potato pie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the thing is, is that Thanksgiving has grown in popularity in my mind over the years. Because, oh, really? Okay. Because now it's a, it's a, we're all together. And, and that's what it's really about is seeing everybody. Maybe you have a couple drinks and that loosens up some conversation and you get back to your base self when you were children, you know, and you start treating each other like when, you know, you were 12 and 10 years old. Sure. You know, you start telling some, telling some stories and some jokes. And that's what I look forward to now is the ability to have uh, friends, uh, well, family around initially. But now since I live away from all of my family, it's the the family that you choose yeah so i always treat that as a as a great example to get everybody together and just and have a good time have a good time share some food 
And so um, we're gonna we're gonna do that. We'll, I guess we will have done that by the time you're hearing this. Yeah, we'll still be uh, have the top button undone. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll do a few extra laps. Mm. Um, so. Uh, you know, one of the more challenging things for me, especially at my former station, um, you know, uh, programming for different holidays and that sort of thing. You know, Thanksgiving is that holiday that doesn't really have a lot of uh, doesn't. like carols or anything. They say over the river and through the woods is a is a Thanksgiving song, huh. if, if you know that one, you know, going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving. But other than that, there uh, isn't much. So is is there a way that you would try to freak your Thanksgiving programming to reflect, you know, the holiday? God, I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, because there isn't any, you know, um, there's no popular Thanksgiving there is, there song. Is, there is no Thanksgiving sleigh ride. Right. You know? So, we, <laughs> um, again, just trying to create an aesthetic. There was a lot of things like uh, um, the shaker thing, but not copeland it was more along the lines of what the anonymous four did you know they took some of those traditional four-part uh quaker shaker pieces and sort of dusted them off and gave them an an updated feel um that's about it yeah that i can remember for me i would go more into the and you know of course this is down in east tennessee so i would go more into that a homey feel that, you know, just trying to think about what a person might listen to if they want to listen to some classical music while, you know, while they're, you know, based in that turkey or while, That's a good you know. idea. So for me, um, when I think of classical music and I think of that down-home sort of uh, feel, I think of Mark O'Connor, and he has a piece of music. It's called the Johnny Appleseed uh, I remember Suite. that, yeah. And uh, I would always make sure that uh, a bit of that music made it onto my um, Thanksgiving program. It just, it, it has that really... Uh, that homey feeling to it. And thinking about that, on my Facebook page, back when I used to have a Facebook page, I would share Bing Crosby's I've got plenty to be thankful for. I'm not going to include my rendition of it, but it <laughs> sounds like this. I've got plenty to be thankful for. I haven't got great big yacht to sail from shore to shore. Still I've got plenty to be thankful for. I've got plenty to be thankful for. That's nice. I, I'm now I'm more interested to hear your rendition. <laughs> you'll have to you'll have to play that for the gang All right. on, on our friends giving. All right. All right, we'll do it. <laughs> All right. Well, um so uh there is a bit of I guess, you know, relevant news for us to cover today. We're not journalists, but so so that means we can say what we want, right? Right. Okay. So when we talk about the relationship between um, indigenous culture and, um, you know, the way that so many of us often just don't consider it, uh, that sort of thing has come up lately with a composer named uh, Caroline Shaw. And I feel like we have brought her up before, like on an early opus, we kind of celebrated her. I was playing part of her partita because I, I was talking about how she was doing these interesting things with sound that was so... And that so is the d- piece of music 
in question. That I didn't I did not realize that. I, I didn't, didn't remember either. that. I didn't oh either. well here we are alive in the moment uh face palming ourselves. So <laughs> so first of all, if you've never heard of uh Caroline Shaw, um from my perspective, uh, most of it is like vocal and, and choral and it has a uh, a really uh, a new feel to it, like mm-hmm. a, a contemporary sound that's still very much pleasing uh to the ears. Uh she's collaborated uh with lots of folks and actually in prep uh, preparing for this conversation scott um i came across a track she did for uh kanye west uh who's Whoa. been who's been in the news a lot lately as well for you know reasons we won't get into today but uh i, I think uh the track she did uh for kanye west uh is an excellent example of uh what her general sound is as i lay me down to sleep i hear her speak to me hello Mari how you doing I think the storm ran out of rain the clouds are moving I know you're happy cause I can see it Yep, so that's Caroline Shaw, and I suppose shout out to Kanye West there, um, <laughs> who I've brought up, um, who I've had to bring up on the air before. Anyway, we'll we'll probably need to have a Kanye West opus of this, but anyway, but let, let's not get too far off the track. So mm-hmm. that's basically Caroline Shaw, uh, her sound, and um, and not too long ago, I think maybe it was 2013, um, she won a uh, Pulitzer Prize uh, for her uh, Partita, and um, that was the song that I. Shout it out. And when we were recently asked for our top 10 list. You put it on there? I put that on there. Oh, Scott. Well, I mean, it is it is great music. But so what, um, you know, so after all this has gone down, you know, she gets the Pulitzer Prize, uh, gives the performances of this music. Um, A woman named uh, Tanya uh, Tagak comes out. And uh, calls out Caroline Shaw for uh, appropriation, specifically saying that she's using Inuit uh, throat singing without any Inuit people being credited, uh, being involved in the in the creation of this music. And uh, it's our good friend Vanessa Rose who actually uh, brought this to my attention. There's a whole thread on Twitter where they're dragging uh, Caroline Shaw. Yeah, and remember, right around the time that this came out, I said, well, look at what's on our website. Right now, right, and the I think, headline was Caroline Shaw uses her own voice or, or sing, sings her own song, something, something to that effect. Which, which I think is even more pointed, and I think we should say that that story came um, from National Public Radio, from mm-hmm. NPR, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, with the relationship our two organizations have, we can, you know, kind of share content in that way. So, yeah, I learned about this, and then I go to classicalnpr.org and and see the same thing, and we we are definitely going to compare. You know, the the two sounds, I, I found some clips for us to take in. But before we do that, Scott, I just want to get your opinion on the um, the implications of that title coming from, you know, organ- organizations that are seen um, as reputable, you know, when it comes to music and elsewhere. There has to be someone who is sitting and thinking very strategically about the title, Caroline Shaw Sings Her Own Song. Is that something that you thought about when you saw that headline? Did I think about who came up with the headline? Who was writing the? Or, or did you think about the implications of that oh, headline, con- uh, considering the drama that was surrounding? I mean, we're talking record scratch. All everything stopped. Pulling the emergency cord on the train, whatever. Yeah, it was. I immediately went. 
what do you mean by that? Right, yeah. Um, now, I, I understand that a lot of people might have the question, does that mean that nobody can do Inuit throat singing except for Inuits? Does that mean that only indigenous cultures can sing in the manner of? That's not what they're saying. It's saying that there needs to be a credit, an acknowledgement, um, uh, some sort of um, acknowledgement that, mean, that it isn't... That that they're that they're taking from this other area, correct? Right. Or what yeah. am I missing? I mean, no, I I think I agree. And again, uh, the woman who uh, called her out uh, on Twitter, uh, Tanya Tagak, you know, and and she is she's very reputable. You know, she's done TED talks, and you mm-hmm. know, she she has the the Twitter uh, verified check marks, and you know, she she's the real deal. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, the the opening line of that first tweet in a thread of tweets concerning this was, "This is appropriation," or "This is." an example of appropriation. So, uh, you know, folks always want to, you know, give us the, oh, everything is so uh, PC these days or whatever. But how are we supposed to look at a situation like this in which a white woman or at least white presenting woman puts out this music that, you know, sounds a lot like Inuit, excuse me, Inuit throat singing and credits no one or there are no Inuit people involved. How is a person up from that tradition supposed to react to, to, to hearing that, you know? Yeah, I get that. So, um, so we're going we're gonna to do a little listen. Let's do it now. So um, the first example I'm going to play for you is actually a demonstration of Inuit throat singing. Um, this came from the, um, the TED Talk that uh, Tanya uh, Tagak did. So, so t- take a quick listen to this. Okay, so that is a, you know, pretty, how, how can I say, uh, not, I, I don't want to say unique sounding, but it's hard to deny that that has a very specific sound to it, right? That's right. Okay, so now let's take a listen to uh, uh, an excerpt from uh, Caroline Shaw's Partita in which she's being accused of copying this and appropriating that sound. <laughs> I could kind of see how the uninitiated would not catch that. And see, I don't. I don't see how it's not obvious that those two things have have, have a are derived from the same thing. Okay, so if you you think that if a person has never heard actual traditional throat singing, that they would listen to that and recognize that as appropriation. No, obvious, right? obviously, if they're unfamiliar with the tradition, they're not going to, you know, pinpoint that. But but for me, what's important to note is that someone who comes from that tradition is not one of these, mm-hmm. you know, outside Internet social justice warriors, is someone who belongs to that culture, who recognized that sound right. and noticed that no one Inuit was involved with it. So 
so she, so she called it out. I, I don't think which I which is great. I, I don't think I'm. I don't think anything's wrong with that. No, not at all. But what I'm saying is the average listener who doesn't have that uh, sort of exposure would think, might think, uh, I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here, that they might think that she's just trying to use different parts of her face or throat to get a certain sound. Um, I don't know that the lion's share of people out there are going to make that connection. So it's great that she pointed it out. Uh, and, and what's Caroline's? What's Caroline's thought on it? Well, has she been a pro? Has she been interviewed yet? So there was some acknowledgement uh, in the description of this opus. I'll put uh, a link to the public statement that uh, Carolyn Shaw and her team put out. I won't read the whole thing, but basically she just uh, outlines the steps they took in um, using some of those Inuit uh, sounds, those traditions. Uh, the uh, I'll read the last line here. It says, thank you again to the many voices who work to bring these issues to our attention, especially Tanya Tagak. So, you know, while this doesn't completely um, absolve her, in my opinion, um, of, you know, the mistakes that have been made, it is nice to see a little bit of acknowledgement. And I'd like to uh, shout out Vanessa Rose for uh, sending me uh, this uh, this statement that we could uh, bring to you today. So again, if you want to read the whole statement from Carolyn Shaw and her team, uh, there's a link uh, to it uh, in the description of this opus. Um, um. I just think, you know, it's important to note things like this as they happen in classical music and specifically contemporary classical music, because, you know, that's what we fight so hard for and 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 diversity therein. So how much. Uh, more powerful of a piece of music would this have been if there were Inuit people involved in it, at least involved in the performance of it? Because um, the, the the videos I've seen have 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 been pretty white, and they are, you know. And it, I don't know. I, I kind of hate to go here. You know, Thanksgiving is about sitting around the table and having some of these difficult conversations, right? So yeah. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm just gonna go ahead and say this. For you know, a lot of people. Had some uh, were upset with me back when Vanessa Rose was on the podcast, and I'm talking about how we need to hold white women accountable as well in these conversations mm-hmm. of diversity and inclusion and and cultural competency. I think this is a shining example. Yeah. I don't think we should cancel Caroline Shaw, but she definitely needs to be held accountable for what a an Inuit uh, woman has has called out in this piece of music that won her a Pulitzer Prize, yeah, you know? Yeah, and wouldn't it be great if Caroline and her ensemble room full of teeth responded uh, by trying to make it right, you know, trying yeah. to, you know, maybe recording something with some of those people from that tradition or, um, or even just the acknowledgement. I mean, I have a suggestion. I would say that, uh, well, you know, it can never be made right. And I don't I don't like that phrase when it comes to. Well, I think uh, you, you but, know well, what I meant. Though. Yeah, no. Yes, of course. Yeah. I'm not yeah. you know, I'm not I'm not trying to drag you. Where's my sound? But I don't have my I wish I had my <laughs> soundbite ready thing. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, it's not about. um you know, dragging Caroline Shaw or, or canceling her, but, you know, hold, but she has to be held accountable in a real way. And for me, you know, I would have a suggestion. I would say all of that Pulitzer Prize money, you donate to one of those Inuit tribes whose music you ripped off, okay? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's just what I, that's what I have to say about that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm <laughs> sorry. Okay. Y'all, y'all know the sound. I forget what opuses those were in, but just remember when Pocahontas's dad said, these white men are dangerous. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking about right now. Um, and, and I, and I guess sometimes it applies to women, but you know, not all hashtag, not all white men, including George Maurer, who, uh, spent lots of time, uh, uh again on, uh, an indigenous, um, on an indigenous uh, reservation after being thrown into that tradition, you know, just serendipitously on yeah. another project he was on. Uh, so he talks about those experiences here and the responsibilities he feels as an outsider when he goes uh, into spaces that he did not create um, and spaces that he does not own and what, you know, from his perspective is required when going there. So again, before we get into this conversation, I want to acknowledge that, um, you know, George is not an expert on any of uh, Native or Indigenous culture. He's only um, an expert on his experiences, which happen to include authentic um, uh, connections with members of uh, Indigenous tribes. So I hope you uh, appreciate this acknowledgement, this Thanksgiving acknowledgement of uh, Indigenous uh, culture, uh, music, uh, and conversation as explored uh, by our friend George Maurer. George, such a pleasure to have you here on Triloquy. I am pleased as pie to be here. So I've been yeah. listening to your podcasts and I'm thrilled. Oh, yeah. thanks. You know, it's it's so funny uh, the way the world works. So uh, we met uh, before I even worked in radio at all. You came through uh, Knoxville to play a uh, a pops show. And um, and yeah, we uh, we connected and I discovered that you lived here. So it was a really uh, pleasant surprise. Um, and, you know, I actually wanted you on the podcast originally to talk about um, pops programming and all of the, you know, complications that uh, surround that when you talk about music rights and everything. But for uh, so we won't focus on that. But for folks who don't really know that language, when we talk about a pops concert in an orchestra, uh, would, would you mind talking a little bit about that and explaining what that is? Uh, yeah, well, pops programming um, is yet another sort of revenue stream for symphony orchestras, uh, uh, classical, and, and then they also, in terms of um, wanting to bring in a public uh, to enjoy uh, the orchestra, and uh, uh, there's just a lot of music out there that's been developed over the years. Of course, we hear it in the movies. Yeah, um, We have uh, uh, a lot of symphonic uh, instruments starting to be blended with pop culture back in the 60s. And so on. Uh, you think of the Beatles, and you think yeah. of Beach Boys, and so on down the line. So um, uh, I was, uh, yeah, working with uh, the original lead cast of Broadway's Jersey Boys, and asked to help uh, co-arrange uh, a full program, full show for symphony orchestra. And that's interesting because you you get to you know be on stage and you get to work with woodwind sections and string sections and percussion and so on and brass. And uh, there's a definite culture yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And younger folks like me are exposed to, like, the music of the Beach Boys and uh, and, and all that sort of thing through the Pops programming because I wasn't, you know, familiar with that music. But, you know, playing it, you know, having played it, I'm familiar. Did, Scott, do you remember uh, ever going to a Pops uh, concert? or Quite a few, okay. yeah. Um, and, and most of them, you know, I, I came away not really feeling strongly one way or the other about them. However, 
watching Bobby McFerrin work. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. That yeah. was pretty amazing. Yeah. yeah. And there was one point where he said, um, have you ever thought about going to a concert and hearing something that wasn't on the program? Yeah. And all the musicians are kind of like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so what he did is he had the librarian put the scherzo from Beethoven's Ninth in everybody's music stand. And he says, now, everybody, loosen your ties, kick your shoes off. We are going to play the snot out of this thing. <laughs> And it was fantastic. Wow. If I need yeah. to play the second movement of Beethoven 9, I need advance notice. That's just me, though. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there a pops that you, you know, uh, and, you know, speaking of, like, you know, the music from a generation that I don't belong to being showcased in these in this pops programming, uh, is there a pops show that, you know, you would be front and center for you about those tickets on on day one yeah it's kind of a it's kind of a guilty pleasure well, steely edition. dan pops <laughs> hey now that's possible can you imagine that expanded are you are you much of a steely dan fan yeah well definitely yeah i was listening to a lot of that in college and and uh such consummate uh song crafters and everything yeah yeah um if they were going to be doing a pops version of that i, I know that they would have a lot of control over sure. that as well. okay oh, no. yeah yeah. No, but I always, I always bought the pink martini pop okay. tickets. Yeah, yeah, I was always front and center yeah, for that. Them at orchestra hall. That's, yeah. yeah, watching China, and yeah. I don't know anybody else's names. Just but China. It's all China. Yeah. What a what a ensemble, and they always put together some really interesting arrangements. Yeah. Um, you know, I always talk about how I would wish, I hope to see the day where I can go uh, see a Beyonce pops, but you know, with the way music rights and all that stuff goes these days, that may never be a thing but you know that that that's another conversation where we're, we're here to talk about something else but I, I guess it kind of relates so when we talk about um these pops concerts uh george and you know the preparation there's so much um you know competency and cultural competency that's uh involved making sure that you're bringing this music to life in a way that the artists would uh appreciate, appreciate. And, and in a way that that honors their work but when we talk about um you know, I hate to use the phrase world music. I, I hate mm -hmm. that phrase. But mm -hmm. when, when we talk about music that's um, instrumental or vocal, but outside of that Western canon, mm -hmm. it seems that that attention isn't really paid. And and especially, you know, today uh, we're talking about, uh, you know, indigenous communities and indigenous people. Um, and it seems like that is one of the biggest, um, you know, sort of dark spots in our music education here in America. Uh, on an on a earlier opus of Triloquy, uh, shout out to uh, Alex, Alex Garcia. Garcia. Uh, when we were in school, he once he's from Mexico, and he once told me that you know it's a part of their learning uh, and their culture to know about the indigenous music and the indigenous culture that came uh, before. But here in America, you know, when you go to music school, you just don't learn anything about those traditions. I mean, I I didn't anyway. Uh, where where did your um, interest in uh, indigenous culture and learning about uh, indigenous people and indigenous music where did that start? Where did that come from? It sort of came about. In a in a in a didn't see it coming sort of way. Sure. Um, I had uh, uh, about four years after uh, graduating from St. John's uh, University in College St. Benedict. Um, I was doing my first full time musician gig. Uh, my agency put me on the road with a, a program um, that I would go into high schools and junior highs and elementary schools, and I would set up my keyboard and a little sound system and. Uh, present like a 45-minute show on how computers and synthesizers work together to create music. And yeah. Back then in the early 90s, we were talking about how MIDI was used and how keyboards and talk with each other and so on. And uh, uh, this show, I was doing about 10 to 15 of those a week. It was everywhere from Chattanooga, Tennessee to, you know, Denver and from Bawabic up on the Iron Range of, of uh, Minnesota down mm. to San Antonio, Texas and everything in between. 
got to see a lot of America that way. And I was in Oklahoma, um, in Anadarko, Oklahoma. Uh, and one of my shows was on a res on a reservation. Uh, at they a just school. happened to send you there. Yeah, it was just part of the program. Yeah, okay. It was an agency that that set this up and was doing it for years. And so that was one of their their clients. So I I pulled into this thing and set up in the gymnasium and there's bleachers in front of me and there's 20 kids and all 20 of those kids were K through 12. Oh, wow. That was the entire For K the through whole, 12. Oh, interesting. And so I was doing my show and, uh, um, the school administrator afterwards, cause I noticed there was some celebration and some signs in the show and everything. And in the school, there was some, some, some celebrations being planned. And I said, what's, and he said, oh, it's our red nation's powwow is tomorrow on this, into this coming weekend. You should, you should be my guest. You should come to, to our event. And I'm like, sure. Like I got the weekend off. I'm, I don't have to be anywhere until Monday. Where's it at? Yeah. And so I, you know, went to my first powwow and learned a little bit about jingle dance and fancy dance and some of the different types of dances. And, and, and it just sort of put a little bit of a seed of like, why don't I know a lot about this? And, yeah. and I want to learn more, you know, so it kind of went from there. I have to, you know, I have to ask and also maybe acknowledge, you know, your your being in this space as someone, you know, who is not indigenous, you know, moreover, someone who's white. Was that something that you were actively thinking about when you presented to those kids and later when you were invited to the powwow? Well, it was something that I had actively thought about after that when huh. I started learning more about my, basically, I mean, they were my audience, but um, I didn't know anything about their cultural background or even the slow realization that I was on a res, you know, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. uh, in a school that was for the indigenous community down there. And so that is all kind of gathered over time. But always, yeah, always I'm I'm kind of aware of like, okay, you know, here's... Um, the way that I've grown up or ways that I've grown up and seen the world, but I am always constantly, I had a philosophy professor in college who was talking about, um, how we, uh, when we're born and perhaps if we grow up in a family that has a particular religion, mm -hmm. it's hard to remove the lenses from our eyes, you know, that we look through, uh, in order to try and see something through the eyes of a, another person or culture or religion or whatever it may yeah. be. But he said, if you just kind of look along the beam of light instead of into the beam of light, you can you can see how refraction happens and wow. how different colors. So I've always kind of thought of that imagery when I kind of go, okay, yeah, here's ways that I was taught and grew up. But if I can always be constantly breaking those barriers. And the only way by doing it is actually either by accident, going up and setting up and doing a gig. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then curiosity and stepping over a, a wall or a boundary or a line and sitting down in the sand or in the bleachers yeah. at a power yeah. and kind of going, oh, I'm just going to listen for a while. And that's what musicians and artists do and composers and Right, the good ones jazzers. anyway. <laughs> yeah, we listen. We have to. Yeah, yeah. What kind of thoughts entered your mind when you first sat there and watched this procession take, take place? What was going through your mind? Well, no one let me sit by myself for too long. I was being welcomed over... I was being asked to join other people on the bleachers. Some uh, a veteran uh, had, you know, waved me over, and and then he took out uh, a cigarette and he broke it in half, and he, and he said, "You have to go and and, and offer uh, uh, this." Uh, there was uh, people were being invited out onto the floor to to uh, take up some of the 
uh, instruments that, that they were using. And they said, you can go out there and do that, but you have to offer tobacco first. Oh, so wow. I learned kind of like, you know, so, so the thoughts that were going through my head is like, I'm just going to float with this. I'm just going to flow with this, you know, and I'm being welcomed into this and I'm not being judged at all, you know, in any one sort of way or another. And, and I wasn't the only white person in the room either, you know? Okay. Um, oh. So that was, you know, a big part of it. But I was like, well, what is it that I can learn? The only way I can learn is by wave, being waved over or by being curious and having questions and being approached, you yeah. know, uh, or approaching somebody. So, um, but it was really cool. All I know is this is like, this is really neat. I like this. Yeah. You know? and, and, and it speaks, is, it, it speaks to that, you know, the welcoming nature that, um, excuse me, that so many uh, communities have that, you know, yeah. folks from those communities don't always have on the converse, you know, that, that feeling of openness and that, you know, that, that feeling of, of welcoming in and, uh, and all of that while acknowledging whose space you're in, you know. That's, that's a, a question that you lead right into a question that I had because on a road trip, so I come from Omaha and there's uh, uh, reservations in the more rural mm -hmm. uh, parts of the state. But on a cross-country trip going through Montana, there's far, far more reservations mm -hmm. that are close to main roads. Mm -hmm. And when we would go by, it would just be all these faces just sat there watching us. Mm -hmm. And they're sitting in abject, just terrible mm -hmm. poverty. Mm -hmm. And the dance and the music seems to be part of a show. So can you talk about the day-to-day uh, when you were there on the reservation, what was it like? Oh, uh, we're, we're uh, jumping uh, ahead to like the, the summer that I spent on on, on the res. Or uh, I was just because I at this particular experience, I was only there for a day or so. And right, only... which was sort of your introduction to, yeah. to all of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, what Scott's talking about, like, is is that something that jumped out to you even in that that uh, that first experience, just the, the, the feeling of, of, of the poverty and, and how no. we've forgotten about these people? No, no. I mean, um, I all I saw was what was happening inside a, a big gymnasium where the power was being held, mm. and it was more of a, I'm taking a broader picture of this, but it was a seed for wanting to pay attention for uh, other opportunities to learn, and that that came a year later, actually. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and before we move forward, Scott, I just kind of you know one of my uh, former colleagues, uh, shout out to Aaron Apaza, he's from uh, Black Hills, uh, South Dakota, mm -hmm. and you know he talked all the time about the uh, reservations there and how it was just sort of common. Uh, conversation with him growing up in school that you don't go to the reservations because and and I, I, I hate to say this but this is the story I was told he said that you uh, it, it was common uh, just to say you don't go to the reservations because you'll get bed bugs or you'll catch <laughs> fleas you know <laughs> and you know just just the way that you know culturally uh, th these people are um, you know, uh, ignore, not just ignore, but just treat it as, as less than that's a perspective that I just didn't really have. You know, there aren't, Same. there aren't many reservations that I know of down South where I'm from. So, you know, there's so many conversations that I just, I, I was in the dark about and it, it breaks, it broke my heart to hear that, to, to hear him tell me that story and, and just to hear how the culture of, you know, indigenous people versus, you know, non-Indigenous people in, in, in that region, how that's, you know, just sort of rough in that way. Yeah, you know, and and when you meet somebody that lives there, it's hard to even know how to reach out, you know, how to engage, um, knowing what their opinion might be. You know, I'm, I have found that um, uh, uh, 
my friends um, are, are my the friendships that I've made with uh, different folk uh, over the years are, are very direct um, sort of uh, relationships and direct sort of uh, and and it, and I don't approach things as sort of like you know thinking that it, um, just because where someone lives um, or the experience that they've grown up in that I have something that they don't have that actually it turns around that they have more than you know, yeah. contain more than what, what I'll, I'll ever experience. And so, yeah. um, but that said, you know, um, that acknowledgement of, of the way that, um, our government society and, and, uh, our history, um, in this country, you know, have treated certain groups, uh, is, is very apparent, uh, from generation to generation to gener- generation and continues. So all those are lenses that I slip on, um, when I do, you know, across uh, the border of various uh, reservations. I was coming back from a month um, composing um, at a residency in, in um, Wyoming uh, this summer, and uh, I love not taking the interstate to get to where I want to go sure, if I have yeah, time. Absolutely. Especially that part of the country. Yeah, so came up from Minnesota through South Dakota to um, Wyoming through one route, actually by way of Montana <laughs> and North Dakota, and then uh, circled back through South Dakota. And I've always uh, wanted to uh, um, stop uh, where a wounded knee had happened. And so I, I found my way onto Pine Ridge um, Reservation and stopped and, and spent some time there and, and some thinking and some reflecting and so on. But But it is, it's really interesting. It's like crossing the tracks it's yeah. like crossing sure. you know uh through a membrane my first time my first experience working on a res up in turtle mountain in belcourt north dakota if we can jump ahead to yeah that. let's yeah um the, that following summer um uh, i had just come off of this tour um uh, with all these schools it was about nine months right and uh my agency said hey we got a chance to put you on a cruise ship in the caribbean for 13 weeks and you know thousand bucks a week and they're going to fly you down there and pay for your food and room you know you want to do it and i'm like that's a good sure. gig for a musician yeah I'm like, <laughs> heck yeah and um uh, my partner at the time uh uh who was already dealing with the fact that i'd been gone for nine months said well you know this relationship isn't gonna last if if you're gone for another three months you know <laughs> and so he said uh, uh i volunteered us to work uh at turtle mountain indian reservation in belcourt north dakota he, he invited the, uh, he 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 he, he made already the decision for the two yeah, of yeah, you yeah 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 i'm like you what <laughs> <laughs> i do that with dale so yeah. it is what it is <laughs> yeah and he had uh, uh gone up there with a, a a spring break trip uh with students from campus ministry st john st ben's and he had had this experience just over a week and he kind of went yeah we're gonna work on a lutheran campground Hmm. I'm like okay. <laughs> That's funny. Your 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 first foray. It was just kind of by happenstance, and it sounds like this was as well. No, I was just being told. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, talking about crossing a border, I remember the first time we we drove up there. I had a you know pickup truck, and we were kind of headed up, and uh, we stopped at the side of the road where there was this big sign, and it said "Now Entering." Turtle Mountain Indian Reservation, and we got out to kind of like take the pictures. And of course, those selfies were Kodak wind-up cameras in those days, you know. Right. So you know, you, yeah, you whatever y'all are talking whatever about. Whatever we're talking about. <laughs> I'm joking. It's okay. <laughs> the adults are talking. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I noticed there were bullet holes in the sign. You know, oh, like wow. it's been used as target practice. And I'm like, goodness mm, gracious, you know, it was cue ominous music. Uh, and then as we got in the truck, 
uh, and started heading onto the res, I looked back over my shoulder and someone had painted on the back of that sign. Uh, oh, no, the sign across the road saying now leaving. Mm-hmm. Someone had X'd out the W and now, so it said no leaving. Hmm. You know, again, cue psycho music, you yeah. know, kind of like, you know, what's, yeah. what's going on here? But but it was a definite, like, you cross into a different place. Um, but there's one thing to see visually what's going on, but then there's another thing to understand spiritually and culturally and, and musically and, and, and everything else that's going on. And it's the conversations that really should uh, dictate uh, uh, the perceptions versus just what the eyes see. And so, yeah, you know, you've already used, um, a word that we're just kind of taught we shouldn't use Indian, Indian reservation. Mm -hmm. How does, how does that conversation parlay on reservations? Yeah, they call it, a lot of them just, it's Indian country. Yeah. Yeah. And the signs are set up, uh, that way. And, and, uh, I, I think, uh, sometimes, uh, things can be too, PC, but basically, you know, uh, that's how a lot of, um, my friends address themselves, you know? Mm. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. I, I, I probably st- still wouldn't feel comfortable saying Indian, but same because, you know, because there's just this level of reverence that, you know, I feel like we have to have for those people. But then even if anyway, that we, we can dive into that for a long time. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, yeah. So, you know, you, you cross over and, you know, I'm curious what those few hours, those first few hours were like, you know, looking at what you're going to be doing for the next bit of time. It was just, it was just really neat. It's just like, again, I had just spent nine months going to different places in the United States I'd never right. been to and downside tracks and left turn lanes and, and dirt roads and, you know, and into haulers down in, in Kentucky and, and uh, Tennessee and and other places. So I was sort of like, this is just another adventure, you know, yeah. this is another sort of, but I had, you know, things to learn. And uh, one of the uh, tribal uh uh, police officers, uh, Glenn sort of took, uh, Aaron and I under his wing and he, and he said, now here's three places I don't ever want to see you guys while oh, okay. you're here. And one of them, they nicknamed the bed bug in, you know, <laughs> so, oh, you know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Another one was a certain bar that he says, just don't go in there cause you're not going to walk out basically. Mm. And, uh, then there was this road that connects uh, two smaller communities to the north near the Canadian border. Uh, this township, this res is about the size of two townships uh, up in the Turtle Mountain Plateau, uh, just up near the International Peace Gardens. Um, and uh, there's a back road up there that kind of is a shortcut. But he said, if you ever take that back road, don't do it at night or don't stop, you know. And he just wouldn't say Mm. Why did you take that road during the day? Yep. <laughs> of course, I was. I was. You're with, curious. You know, no. Yeah. Well, my partner was the one who was always like, "No, I'm gonna." <laughs> I'm like, okay. So, uh, so talk to me about um, like your your role here. So, so what what was your your function from day to day on this reservation? Well, we were uh, working with youth, um, uh, and uh, at this campground that had been there for a while, and it was sort of like doing programming for kids during the day because this was probably a, a better place for them for some of them to be than to be at home mm-hmm. sometimes um but it also gave them some purpose and some things so of course you know typical activities and singing and but we were also helping we were working with counselors who were from the tribe uh from the ojibwe tribe and um um 
and so they were uh, teaching various crafts and music and so on. So we were helping teach them their own culture, you know, while yeah. we were learning huh. aspects of it, which was just really cool. That you know? right there is heavy. Wow. A, a white person teaching indigenous kids well, their own helping, culture. Helping teach because I wasn't definitely at all feeling like I'm like, I know anything. Yeah. But as we were learning it, we were helping to facilitate those activities and those things. So what instruments were you using and what songs were you sharing? Oh, uh, you know, that was such a long time ago. Now I can't, I can't quite remember, but I know that drum, drumming, of course, was a big part of it. And, uh, of course, and all the kids knew how to do drumming, whether it was hand drums or even helping uh, watching a drum being created out of uh, an animal skin and out of a deer skin and so on. Um, learning uh, and singing songs in Ojibwe and, 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 and learning the language and, and singing these songs. Uh, and, of course, there's a blend of cultures, uh, uh, French uh, Canadian uh, fur trappers uh, and yeah. uh, those communities had uh, intermingled over over the centuries um, leading up, and so there was a, a heavy f- uh, French influence, you know, with with music and with certain song styles and fiddles and jigs versus you know a more traditional uh, style. So just being a slowly being aware of of like, oh, okay, here's and 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 people embracing those both of those cultures, you know, and their families that had last names that were very French sounding, mm-hmm. you know, and we're talking about, uh, the use of the word Q, you know, uh, or the, or the, or the letter Q or Q U E and so on. But yeah. there were a lot of French, French names, you know, and, and, and with them were customs that were, and associations with more of that side of, of a particular, particular culture versus, uh, um, being uh, full-blooded and, and so on. So the, it was just very interesting just to see the way even people treated each other within the culture. Right. But we were teaching songs. I had a keyboard with, of course, I had just done nine months and, you know, uh, 67,000 miles, you okay, know. Doing, yeah. So I started doing my show for the kids. I thought, well, why don't I teach them about computers and synthesizers? So I had that with. And at one of the shows I was doing for the kids in, in the roundhouse, um, there was a guy sitting in the chair in the back row listening. He had come in from the community. We were about four or five miles outside of town. And he comes up to me after the show and he's like, hey, you know, you, you, you're real good. You play piano real good. Uh, uh, I'm drummer and band leader for a, uh, a band called uh, Heartbreak Station. We play country western music. Uh, hmm. would, would you like to join my band? Hmm. You know? <laughs> and I said kind of tongue-in-cheek, yeah, i Always wanted to join a band of Indians, you know. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and he, but that's, but see, you're cringing. He didn't cringe at all. Okay. He thought that was cool and funny because it, it's, it's humor. It's, it's, it's dry and it's humor. But he totally got it. And again, this is 1992, so you know, I, 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 I say that with, with, you know, not any sort of sense of like this is not a, a problem. Of but course, this is, you know, uh, but he said that, and I like, I was like, this is great. This is cool. And all of a sudden, an entire layer was added to that summer because now I'm traveling with five of these guys and I'm playing, you know, Garth Brooks to dance and way down on the Chattahoochee and, you know, more than mm. words by extreme, all these country western songs and pop songs and so on and being a jazz musician i'm like hey just stay away from the ninths and the 15ths and the songs and so yeah and just but it was cool it was just and and just playing these gigs you know in bars and weddings and then all of a sudden now i uh am on the stage but i i'm watching dancing happening in front of me and i'm watching people socializing and i'm watching 
bar culture or, or I'm being invited to other events and things. And I'm like, this is cool. I'm like with these folks and it's really cool. Hmm. You know, that's, that's something to me to, to think about, uh, th- this band that you're involved in, the focus, you know, being, uh, you know, this very American, this, this very white American, white if music. I may, uh, music, uh, you know what? What what were those rehearsals like? What what are the conversations? Rehearsals? So uh, okay, fine. What what are the jams? I don't know. You know, surrounding a, a Garth Brooks song. I mean, what the sessions? I guess the question, like listening to it on the radio. Well, I, I like guess the question I'm, I'm getting at is, did did they see you as a uh, as a resource for this this genre? That no, they're... I I, I kind of think that it feels like we feel like you're saying that. Um, like some like we cross a, a border, and I'm, I probably have, have set this up a certain way, but American culture doesn't stop at the border of anything. Okay. Our collective culture, you know, is in the radio airwaves. It's now through the internet. It's through the LPs and the cassettes and the CDs and the DVDs and whatever the forms have been through time. And just because, um, you know, our government created reservations years ago and said, oh, you know, we like to think, oh, this contain, kept away, yeah. whatever. I mean, um, the, the, some of the most amazing um, musicians and performers of those genres of music have been my friends who were in Heartbreak Station. But, but you have to admit that because, you know, you know, even in my experience, with with the knowledge, um, excuse me, the knowledge and the culture of of those communities, not you know making it to us, it that that insular nature seems mm-hmm. to be what it is, and and I guess that's a testament to our lack of cultural competency uh, in sure. that regard. Well, I mean, part of the reason that we don't know so much is because that was just never put into our history books. History is always taught from the perspective of the dominant mm-hmm. culture or the winner, you know. Um, but their history has always been there, you know, and it's just a matter of like, well, what is it that I don't know about this perspective in history that, but once you go in, I mean, there's, there's, and, and meet and, and, and sit down and, or pick up an instrument and get on stage. Um, I, I, I think I always try and like never have an attitude of like, oh, I know more just because I've gone here and I've gone there and I've done this and I've done that. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I, I, I think I'm always really kind of like, I gotta keep it tapped down or not tapped on but just aware of like what is it that i have to learn what is it that i don't know yeah regardless of everything else that i know that i've learned you know what is it that i don't know you know and what is it that i can share to make their group a better group you know and i mean and there were little ways you know the bass player kept on turning the drummer to stop the song and turn his back on the audience which is what any rock band will do yeah but they were preparing for the battle of the bands contest at the Flickertail beer gardens at the north dakota state fair in minot north dakota okay. that was the last gig i was going to have with them that summer mm. and i said you know what i can help you guys work on your show if there's anything i, I just kind of like we well, just gotta do a little bit more show you know because they're going to be competing against all these other bands across right. north dakota and uh so that's those were some things that i sort of like you know coached coached them on you know but i was learning all kinds of stuff from them yeah i'm all sure kinds of stuff. yeah most people are not going to get the opportunity to sort of mm-hmm. integrate mm-hmm. into that culture for such a long period of time what do people miss about what what would you say to a person who's never been in contact with an indigenous person and they only have stereotypes what would you say that they're that they're missing 
that they might not understand? I mean, that could be so individual. Um, but I, I think that uh, uh, it's it's something that's maybe we can make into something that's harder to, to do than it really is. Mm. Um, I mean, I'll give an example because I, I want to include any Buddy that anybody doesn't know about versus just you know what we're focusing on sure, here sure. as a as a as a as a, an example of that. But I was bicycling across Sri Lanka a few summers ago, and I was at the very tip of an island that, if you look across 26 kilometers, you can see India. So it's a very kind of the very northwest mm-hmm. tip of Sri Lanka, and there was a lighthouse there, and I wanted to kind of get in close for this cool shot of the lighthouse. And it was the end of the day, and the sun was going down, and there were. Uh, Muslim fishermen on the beach fixing their nets. They had just got done fishing and they were cleaning their nets and and sitting in the sand. And I was just kind of like looking at the whole picture of everything in front of me and it was kind of cool. And they noticed me there and they, they waved me over. I'm like, okay. I just walked over and sat down in the sand because that's, you know, it was a friendly wave. Come on over. And I'm like, sure. You know, I had no kind of like, oh, I need to like, you know, stay away or I'm not sure or whatever, you know. And I sat down and we just started talking and visiting and, and just sharing, I, I started asking them questions. And I think it starts with asking questions, just like, what are you doing? Or what's your name? Hey, where are you from? Or, you know, what's that? You know, or what are you listening to? And, and they were showing me how they make their nets and what they're cleaning out of it. And so and one of them handed me a, um, a seahorse, a dried up seahorse from his nets. And as he's handing it to me, he looked at me, he says, well, well where are you from? You know, and, and I kind of shruggingly kind of said, well, I'm from the United States, you know. Mm-hmm. And because aware of, you know, there's people's perception of America, well, also and... just our involvement, uh, the CIA's involvement with their civil war that had, had happened. Okay. I had been read up on the history something, of that, something so. else that I missed in the from the history books. But you know, anyway, go on. I did, I, anytime I go to a country now, or I'm going to go to a different country, I try and like pile on books and read as many things as I can, so I can see the layers, or at least mm. detect the layers as I'm going through. And it's just a way. I, it's the way I compose too. Um, and so, uh, he immediately set his nets down and he took my hands right into his hands and he looked me right in the face and he just said, can you please, please, when you go back to your country, tell everybody that being Muslim is not bad. Wow. And I said, I already know that. I said, but yeah, of course. But he wanted me to deliver a message. He wanted me to, you know, he was concerned. He wanted me to know something about him. And just that very act of just sitting down, just sitting down next to somebody and not feeling like, oh, you know, or is it safe or whatever, you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I do it. Well, I, I think it very, you know, for, for you to say that when you go somewhere, you, you know, do your research and you read all of these books, you know, that we, we miss that mark so often. And it's a low mark. Yeah, yeah, very low <laughs> mark, just to prepare yourself for entering someone else's space. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we, we can talk about that uh, as it uh, applies to classical music or just interpersonal relationships and uh so, yeah, so, you know, bravo to you for... Oh, I for stayed all... up all night preparing to come into this space here, you know, oh, when did I you? found oh. out yesterday that I'm like, wow, <laughs> Trillicry, let me listen. Oh, well, well, uh, we're... 
I don't have a seahorse to give you, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're here talking, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's great. Um, so, you know, as this airs, um, it is the holiday that a lot of people, you know, call uh, Thanksgiving. I, I have my own feelings about that or, or whatever, but, um, and I hope this isn't a problematic question, but I'm curious about the implications of Thanksgiving um, from your perspective, you know, dealing with indigenous communities and having lived on a reservation. Is that a conversation that ever popped up? Uh, a lot of them celebrate Thanksgiving, too. Well, wow. A lot of my friends, too. So I wonder what that means. I don't feel I'm like the right person to, of to course. be asking that. Of uh, course, but, yeah. You know, I think things get rolled into experiences and it's family and it's, and it, and there's also those that probably don't, you know, just like it would be anywhere else. Um, so I think people just kind of pick and choose. Sure. What, More of an excuse to gather and yeah, just be yeah. together. Or to do a food shelf thing, you mm. know, or to that's what draw matters at the end, I guess. attention or, or whatever it may be. But, um, you know, um, I, I don't think they're sitting down and, and reading the story of Miles Standish and, sure. you know, Sacagawea and kind of re- relating the, the nativity scene all over again, you know. <laughs> okay, but, yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't think that's, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> Unless it's being said from the right perspective. Right. You know, and then. You know. and, and that's what I think yeah. is at the end of it for me, because a lot of this conversation has been a little uncomfortable for me because there's that fear of saying the wrong thing. And, you know, of course, Scott, we can get into how you feel that way a lot on this podcast <laughs> every day. <laughs> so it, so it, it feels it feels good to be on the side of you know making sure that I am uh, you know cautious not cautious on what I say but you know just thoughtful and 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 thinking about what those other uh, perspectives are um, and, and especially this time of year for for me it's always meaningful to uh, think about and showcase and to celebrate uh, conversations like these and indigenous cultures. Um, both on the on that holiday that folks call Columbus Day um, and this one uh, called Thanksgiving, uh, George. Uh, so you know you've traveled you know far beyond um, North American uh, reservations in Sri Lanka. How can how can folks learn more about the other places you've gone and the other work you do in music? Uh, do I just yeah go GeorgeMauer.com with two R's. Uh, okay, M A U R E R. I think um, um, what I've been trying to do lately um is is uh with the soaking up of different things that happen with me as i travel through different places and and a lot of that traveling i kind of hinted earlier was has been on a bicycle um over the last six summers just a different country every summer uh, and started off as a fundraiser to raise funds for a friend who had died Mm. of cancer and kind of do things in her memory but in the process of doing these long solo rides there's no car windows to separate me from the sounds, the you smells, experience it right the, there. Yep. the things that you can you know, hear and, and see, and you can you can break on a dime with a bicycle and have a conversation. And so the conversations I've started having, especially in other countries, you know, like Newfoundland and Sri Lanka and Vietnam and, and Iceland and so on, really have made me go, well, what is my artistic response to this? What is my response as a composer? And people say, oh, how can you be away from a piano so long? I'm like, actually, it's kind of nice to be... You know, just having my hands on the on the on the uh, handlebars of a bike for five weeks rather than at a piano, um, and it takes maybe a month for my hands to come back. You know, because sure. with the, the the muscles, but but ultimately there's an artistic response, but it's not necessarily anything specific, but more of just kind of like more added layers of of nuance and and so on. Um, so 
uh, to get to your thing, uh, your question about what I'm up to, what I've sort of done is sort of a, an initial um, reaction is I started bringing recording gear on my bike last couple rides. Mm. Um, and so, you know, kind of like the stuff that you folk here at American Public Green Media would take out into the field to do an interview. And, mm-hmm. and uh, so it uh, fits nicely into a pocket on the bike. And, and uh, so I sat down and, and met a bunch of different artists in Newfoundland over the course of a week at a writer's festival up in uh, Woody Point, Newfoundland, and uh, interviewed them just kind of having conversations like we're having here because I love conversation and inquisitiveness and asking about what is it that they do as artists to help impact their communities, especially communities that are formerly communities that thrived off of the fishing industry, which has collapsed and Mm. and they're trying to either survive or disappear. And with the disappearances of those communities are the disappearances of cultures and language and And music and music. And And there's a fascinating woman to kind of jump a little bit more specifically into this that I met uh, a, a, a cultural kind of artistic anthropologist. Her name is Pam Hall, and she's a, a visual artist. Um, but her life's passion and work right now is something called the Elk Project. Uh, ELK stands for Encyclopedia of Local Knowledge. Hmm. And she will spend a minimum of 100 days in a community, whether it's uh, an indigenous community in Newfoundland uh, or uh, a fishing uh, community that's hugging the coast uh, that can sometimes only be you know approached by boat. Uh, and uh, she will interview every single person in that town, from the youngest to the oldest, and uh, write down or capture on the pages of a giant encyclopedia ultimately um, um, how it is that they build uh, wooden punts for boats for fishing or a particular pie recipe or she'll even go and um, shoot um, uh, with her camera all of the gravestones in a cemetery mm-hmm. and then she'll take a phone book and take a look at the last names in the phone book versus the last names that are in the cemetery and to, and to just place those two images side by side and say, look how many of these names have disappeared. Wow. And with them goes that knowledge. And she, what she tries to do is to capture everything that as much as possible that everybody knows, and she'll never get to all of them, she admits, but to then put it into the pages of this book, which then becomes something that gets handed back to the community to say this is this is what you a lot of what you are right here and now it's now it's locked in on these pages and other copies get archived in the national archives and so on and she's trying to do this and trying to teach communities and in the process of doing that sort of what i get to do as a composer and an artist is is um uh she's learning she's understanding she's widening the depths and creating more layers to what she's doing and uh so that's i've taken those interviews those conversations and i put them into a little small podcast of tales from a bicycle seat and i've only got two of them up on my website right now because i don't have the time like you do and the staff like you do <laughs> and engineers uh named ozzy uh, to uh <laughs> to put it together um but uh it's something that's important to me because it's not necessarily specifically composition but it is a way of putting out there in the air something that i learned that i didn't know before that's a natural organic conversation that anybody can have yeah and putting it out there and saying look y'all this is what i bumped into 
when I cross that line, when I cross that border. And some of the conversations maybe could be messy and maybe we don't use the right words sometimes or maybe I describe, you know, whatever. But sure. the, but there's stumbling, but in the stumbling you get momentum and, and you fall forward into better knowledge or, you know, at least knowing that you're not going to step in a particular hole again. Yeah, you know? yeah. So I mean, I, I don't know, Scott. I, I love microphones and engineers, but triloquy on the road sounds pretty fun. <laughs> Not on a bicycle for me. But <laughs> Well, George, thank you so much for uh, being here and, and sharing your perspective with us. I'll write the theme song for that triloquy on the road podcast if you ever get to it. Okay, so. right sounds on. good. Yeah, right I'll, I'll, we'll hold, I'll hold you up to that. It. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much. Thanks, yeah. George. Yeah, thanks for having me here. George Maurer in conversation with Garrett McQueen and myself, Scott Blankenship, here on Triloquy. Uh, so the question that uh, so many white folks ask me, what can we do? What what can we do to help? What, what do we need to do? And I think George uh, laid it out when he talks about how much he prepares for his journeys and how much he prepares for his interaction. You know, he's 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 read so many books. You know, I've been to his place and he's shown me artifacts and, you know, all, all sorts of things that uh, relate to the uh, conversations of the indigenous peoples uh, that he's had interactions with and, and beyond. You know, he told the story about uh, being over in uh, Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's as simple as that, making an authentic effort to learn something and to engage communities uh, in, in a real way and in an equitable way. And if you're not prepared going into these situations, the best thing to do is just listen. Yeah. Sit back and <laughs> shut up and listen. Yep. Okay. All right. So, uh, again, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, hope you enjoyed, uh, or as this... the Brits say, uh, happy ungrateful day. Oh, 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 I never thought of that. Okay, yeah. sure. Well, you know, white <laughs> on white crime, what are we going to do? Um, where are their fathers? So on the next opus of, tri... <laughs> on the next the opus of, uh, Triloquy, um, we're going to go to the motherland a little bit, you know, and and when we talk about, um, you know, going into, into these communities and celebrating them authentically, that's uh, what the guest on next uh, week's opus, uh, next, you know, on the next opus of Triloquy, what she did. So her name is Kashimana Ahua. Uh, she um, was born and raised uh, in Nigeria, lived in Kenya for a while and moved to Minnesota where, um, you know, she began to study music, uh, got a composition degree and uh, is a songwriter. So we're going to talk about songwriting, some of our favorite songs on the next opus of Triloquy, uh, Kashima will uh, sing a song for us that she wrote on the spot thanks to some uh, prompts uh, we gave her and uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the uh, In Common songbook that she put together after visiting Wilmer, uh, Minnesota so yeah, the next opus of Triloquy is uh, jam-packed um, and we hope that you will uh, check it out and look forward to the next installment of Triloquy TV, we get some nice video of Kashimana yeah, all of that available at Triloquy.org. Remember, you can also reach out to us with all of your complaints at Triloquy at AmericanPublicMedia.org. That's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-I at AmericanPublicMedia.org. <laughs>